All righty, let's go ahead and open up, open up our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And I'm going to pick it up where we left off, but I am going to back up just a little bit and, and try to get a running start just as a refresher. You know, Paul was comforted when Titus arrived uh, there and brought them news of what was going on in Corinth. And Titus was one of those guys that was very close, not as close as Timothy, but pretty close. And he was also the one that Paul eventually would send to the island of Crete. And, um, and he was just a good guy, but he, he went there and to take news that really wasn't too good, the letter that he took to the Corinthians, in order to correct that situation that was going on in the church. And what was that situation? Well, there was a lot of carnality and sin that was actually going on within the body of Christ. And these guys had mistaken grace for acceptance of iniquity. And it's easy to misunderstand that. And that what they had done was there was a, of course, those of you who, who have, are students and you, of the Bible, you know that what was actually going on was that there was a, a man who was having an illicit affair with his stepmother, something that most people would be appalled at. And yet the Corinthian church was actually allowing this to go on, you know, under their nose and within their fellowship, not realizing that Jesus said when a little bit of leaven will leaven the whole lump. So under the guides of grace, in reality, what they were showing was simply acceptance of sin. Not unlike what we see going on in the, in the body of Christ today. Uh, people just misunderstand the issue of grace. Grace delivers us from the bondage of sin. It, it, it encourages us to embrace the glory and the attributes of God, you know, whereby we have these precious promises, the Bible tells us, that we're made partakers of his divine nature. And so that would lead us away from the bondage of sin, not into it, and certainly not into a position where we just accept it and we chalk that up as grace. Well, that was what the Corinthian church was doing, and Paul had sent Titus with that letter. And so when Titus comes back, you know, he brings great news because the Corinthian church, even though they had really gotten off kilter, uh, repented. And they repented and their repentance was of a godly sort as we're going to see later on in our study. And there's a vast difference between a godly type of repentance and simply repentance that looks like repentance or what he calls worldly repentance. So let's go ahead and pick it up here in verse 8. And Paul says, For though I made you sorry with a letter, that's the first letter he said, he said, I do not repent, though I did repent. For I perceive that the same epistle hath made you sorry, though it were but for a season. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to repentance, for you were made sorry after a godly manner, that you might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death." Paul was concerned that his first letter that he had wrote to them was a little bit harsh. You know, Paul was one of those type of guys that didn't beat around the bush. He just said it the way it was. He said it in love, but some people didn't take it that way, and so they would be upset. He was concerned that he had maybe went a little too far. 
a little too harsh. Then, when he didn't hear anything from them, I'm sure that he was convinced <laughs> that they were upset and that they had been ups, you know, ticked off at him, for lack of a better description. Thus, Paul said he repented. At first, he was sorry about it. But then, when Titus comes back, he says, well, now I'm not sorry about it. Because now, he realized that his letter actually did the right thing. It did good. He prodded them, and he nudged them in the direction of genuine repentance. And that's exactly what they did. And he said, and that type of repentance is not to be repented of. Paul said that he rejoiced. Not that they were made sorry. It wasn't like he took any pleasure in what he had to do. And I want to encourage you guys that when you have, you know, of course, Jesus did say, make sure that the plank is not sticking out of your own eye before you do it. But when you're genuinely concerned about somebody and an issue that maybe you see in their life that's sinful, don't be afraid to address it. Just make sure that your own life is in order. Now, we all have issues, no doubt. We're all going to struggle. You know, Paul says the spirit wars against the flesh and the flesh against the spirit. You know, but who's going to deliver us from that? We thank God through Jesus Christ. And so it's, it's that type of grace. But we want to be able to reach out to our friends and our neighbors and to encourage them in a godly way and in a godly manner with the word of God. Paul rejoiced, not that he made them sorry, that wasn't what he was rejoicing, but that they sorrowed to repentance because godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation. Now, most of you Bible students understand the word repentance in the Greek means to change one's mind. And that's exactly what it does mean. Many people want to take the shorter route, and they simply want to make repentance a matter of just turning around, doing a 180. You know, have you heard it said, and some people think that it's a military term, and I know a lot of people use that, and guys I, I even respect. But even they know that it doesn't mean that. It actually means a changing of your mind. And why is that important to distinguish between the two? Because the act of changing one's direction and changing one's mind, while you cannot change one's mind without changing one's ways, you can change your ways without changing your mind. Does that make any sense? And, and because a lot of times people just reform. You know, Every year, we, we see everybody goes through the New Year's resolutions. Here's what I'm going to do, man. You know, and, and, and you know they're never going to lose that 20 pounds. You know it's not going to happen. <laughs> and, and if they do, they're going to put it right back on, or they're not going to quit this, and they're not going to quit that. I mean, even if they do, it'll be short-lived. Why? Because it's not genuine repentance. They haven't changed their mind about it. They simply have decided that they're going to reform and reformation never brings anything more than frustration because we always wind up not doing it. But repentance, when you change your mind about something, when you walked in here this evening, every one of you had mentally made a decision. You didn't know you did, but you did. You made an absolute decision that that chair that you're sitting on, you had faith that it would hold you up when you sat into it. None of you, and I was watching, nobody reached down and wiggled it, shook it. Let me see if that's going to hold how much I'm going to say. No. What did we do? We all just plop right down in her because we believe beyond a shadow of a doubt it's going to hold us up. Therefore, your thinking directed your actions. 
So often in Christendom, we're more concerned with changing somebody's actions than we are with changing what they believe. When it's not bad actions that we need to correct, we need to correct bad belief. Because if your belief is correct and your mind is changed, your actions will follow. You understand? We all do exactly what it is that we believe. It's just the way it is. So you can change. You can't change your mind without changing your ways, but you certainly can change your ways without changing your mind. The problem is it won't last. And the difference, really, according to Paul, is eternal in its destination. Why? Because Paul says godly sorrow works repentance unto salvation. But worldly repentance worketh death. And a great example of worldly repentance was when Esau, you remember Esau who sold his birthright for a bowl of soup and later on tried to repent. And the Bible says though he sought it carefully with tears, he couldn't find it. Because why? Repentance is a gift of God. That's a whole other teaching, but that's what it is. But he couldn't find it. You look at Judas. Another great example. Judas felt so bad that he took the money back, you remember? And he tried to give it back to them. And they said, no, we don't want it. He goes, look, I've betrayed innocent blood. He felt bad. I don't doubt that. When he saw the look in Jesus' face when he kissed him on the cheek, because only a friend, my friends, can betray a friend. A, a stranger has nothing to gain. But when he saw the look in Christ's eyes, I'm sure that he felt bad. But he cast the money down. He wouldn't even take it. The Bible says he cast it down in the house of the Lord. And they took that money and actually bought a potter's field with it. But what did he do? He went out and hung himself. There was no place of repentance for him. He couldn't find it. Because it was worldly. It wasn't true godly sorrow over what he had actually done. He felt a little bit of guilt. And it's not the same. Godly sorrow, when we came to Christ, and maybe you're, you know, your, your story is the same as my own. That, you know, I remember when I was 13, I didn't, wasn't going to go here, but I'll, I'll share it with you. When I was 13, and I went to a tent revival. I did, the lady who I love and, and adore, and even to this day, one of the women who really led me to Christ, her name's Della. You know, she, she came and got me and wanted me to go to this tent revival with her, which I did. And of course, I couldn't tell you who the evangelist was, but we listened to the music, and you know, and I listened to him preaching, and at 13, I was convinced I was going to hell. Because I was. And I went forward. Now the problem was, I went up there because I felt guilty. I, he had guilted me into going forward. The problem was, when I walked out of there, nothing really had changed. And I walked out of there and I went right back into the same worldly ways that I was, even at 13 years old, which is why I wound up married when I was 16 years old. You know, that's a whole other story. But we all have one. We all have that time when we were walking in sin and rebellion. Now, I said that to say this. Now, until when I hit 24, my brother came to me. And he began to speak to me about the things of Christ, about Jesus. And it wasn't this guilty thing. It was, it was what Jesus had come to do and what he really had done for me personally. And the fact that I was a wretch and the fact that I had sinned against God, I didn't want to hear it. But it really, after three days, led me to a conversion that was real. And it was life-changing. And my whole life changed. And... It was godly sorrow, and it worked salvation in my particular case. 
So often people can just come and it's superficial and it, it doesn't change anything. It's, it's worldly repentance. You know, you, you just can't guilt somebody into that. They, they have to feel and understand that we have sinned against God. It's our own wretchedness that should drive us to the cross. You understand what I'm saying? And so often today, gang, it's not being preached. What's being preached? Well, Jesus loves everybody. You know, I heard R.C. Sproul say one time before he went home to be with the Lord that unfortunately today, all you have to do to get into heaven is die. Well, I got news for you. That's how you get into hell, is to just die. Many years ago, when I was on radio, my first stint, this would have been back in like 19, wow, 82. So a couple years ago, the first annual uh, brunch that, that the, the radio station held was in Columbus. And the keynote speaker was Pastor Chuck Smith of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. And I was just a young puppy. I knew very little, but I went to hear this great man of God. And I, and I ran there, and literally I grabbed the first the seat that was right in front of his pulpit. I could have reached out and touched the pulpit. You know, I, th I thought I was in the, in the presence of an apostle. And I, felt, and I stood there with my little hand pad. And just every word that came, I couldn't write fast enough to copy everything that he said. Because I was so moved at how he presented the gospel and how he pointed us back to Jesus. But he, he pointed us back to the fact that we need to repent. We need to come to Christ biblically. And the fact is admitting that we're sinners, admitting that what we have done is sinned against God is the first step to doing that. And so often today it's just not the case. But we want to be faithful to what the Word of God says and how we are to do it. Godly sorrow works repentance unto salvation. Worldly sorrow works death. So it's a vast difference between the two. Look at verse 11. He says, For behold, this selfsame thing that you sorrowed after a godly sort, what carefulness it wrought in you. Yea, what clearing of yourselves. Yea, what indignation. Yea, what fear. Yea, what vehement desire. Yea, what zeal, yea, what re revenge. In all things you have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. I love the fact that Paul says that the repentance that the Corinthians showed was after a godly sort. How did Paul know that it was after a godly sort? Because they sorrowed and showed their care for doing the things the way God would have them to do it. They wanted to do the way the things got that God wanted them to. Not unlike a group of people that I know. They took a stand for the word of God and said, you know what, we want to do it the way God says to do it. And that's great, man. It's, it's, it's an amazing thing to hear for people to stand up and say, you know what, we want to do what the Lord has us to do. Having been rebuked by Paul, they wanted to show their love for God and his ways and to clear themselves, as Paul said, of the sin that they had been a part of. The fact that it actually upset them at themselves, and it should have. You remember David, when David had sinned with Bathsheba, and he had wound up causing the death of one man and her husband, and, and had kept trying to cover up the mess and cover up the mess. Finally, Nathan comes to him and tells him the story of the little ewe lamb. And David was so angered by the story of this man who had stolen another man's lamb. He said, this man shall surely be put to death. Nathan said, thou art the man. You're the man. And the first words out of David's mouth was, I have sinned against the Lord. 
and he came to that conclusion that he had sinned against God. This is the way the Corinthians were. They acknowledged it. It made them mad at their self that they had been a part of that type of sin. But they wanted to clear themselves. And so even though Paul pointed out they, they had repented after a godly sort, because the, because the repentance was after a godly sort, it had fruit of such that is produced in them that this, Paul calls it that vehement desire. And that's how you know when somebody's really repenting. Because I've heard people ask me that. They go, well, how do you know somebody's repented? I said, how do you know you repented? I know how I knew I did. Man, when I came to my senses and when, when, when we freely confess to the Lord, I have sinned against God because that's who we sin against. You know, I realize that we sin against each other, but we really, in, 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 when it gets down to brass tacks, it's God that we have sinned against. But the Bible says, he that confesseth his sin and forsakes it, him shall be blessed. Oh, it's a, it's a marvelous thing when we can just confess our sins and we know that we are casting it on the, on the throne of grace and that forgiveness is complete and, and eternal. Man, it's, a, it's such a relief, if you will. And it causes that vehemence of zealousness and just desire for the things of God. And, and what do we normally do? Most of us ran out and began to tell everybody about it. Anybody who would listen. I, I thank God it hasn't changed in my life, but and I know that some of that's because of my calling. But man, there's nothing better than leading somebody to Christ. I don't care how old you are. You know, to see their lives changed. I am convinced, gang. You know, the Bible says that the Lord sent his word and he healed them. So often today, we're seeing this mixture of psychology and, and, and somehow the gospel. And we think that because somebody is addicted to drugs or alcohol or whatever that thing, or sex, you know, or the, you know, there's just all kinds of crazy stuff that people are addicted to. What's the cure? It's God. It's the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit can deliver anybody. There's nothing, no 12-step program that beats the Holy Spirit. Because it's only one step. It's one step to the cross. Fall on your face before God. Admit you're a sinner. And God will deliver. He will. So often we don't seek it though. Because we're so used to following and being convinced by the world of what. Well, a lot of times the world chalks all these things up as illnesses anymore. When God calls them sin. But it causes a zeal. When we come to that, it, it causes a zeal. Look at verse 12. Wherefore, he says, though I wrote unto you, I did not for the sake or, or for the cause that had done the wrong, nor for his cause that suffered the wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear unto you. Paul made it clear here in verse 12 that he didn't write these things or, or do anything for any other reason than to show these Corinthians how much he cared for them. And once again, I emphasize the fact that when we confront somebody, even our, ourselves first, obviously, because we want to be honest with ourselves. I used to use a book at Calvary Chapel. I haven't used it in a long time, but sometimes I would have people who were struggling in particular sins. And I had this book. It was uh, called uh, Self-Confrontation. And uh, it's a hard book. It's tough to go through. Why? Because it makes you focus on you. <laughs> and that's a toughie. 
to go through and really stand in front of the mirror, which is the Word of God, and just apply that to your own self and be brutally honest with your own faults and your own sin. That's a hard thing to do. It's easy for me to do it with your sin because, you know, because I don't have to look at mine if I'm looking at yours. But that's really not what the Lord would have us to do. He wants us to look at our own first, which is why Jesus said, if you're going to help somebody else, make sure the plank's out of your own eye. You know, because we've all got a story, gang. But Paul makes it clear that he wanted them to know how much he cared for them. Verse 13. Therefore, we were comforted in your comfort. Yay! And exceedingly the more joy we were uh, for the joy of Titus because his spirit was refreshed by you all. Paul was so thankful for their treatment of how they treated Titus when he got there, even though he was bringing basically bad news. You know, he was bringing a rebuke, but yet they treated him like the Lord himself. Look at verse 14. For if I have boasted anything to him of you, I'm not ashamed. But as we spake all things to you in truth, even so our boasting, which I made before Titus, is found in truth. It was true what I told him about you is what he's saying. And his inward affection is more abundant toward you while he remembereth the obedience of you all. How with fear and trembling you received him. I rejoice, therefore, that I have confidence in you in all things. Paul was giving his reaction here to the report that Titus had delivered to him about the Corinthian church. And how all the things about which Paul had been concerned had genuinely been rectified. Man, that is such a blessing when, when brothers can walk in unity, the Bible says. And when correction is accepted. You know, I've always told people, man, if you're going to teach the Word of God, you have to at least be teachable yourself. Stay teachable. Stay correctable. Regardless of how old you are, especially those of us who are a little up there. Because there is wisdom with gray hair. There is. Why? Because a lot of us have had a lot of hard knocks. You know, we've been through a lot of things and, and sometimes we've been through a lot of sin and we've had to confess a lot of sins and we've made our mistakes before the Lord and we've been restored and we know what it feels like and so we really want to spare the younger people that kind of pain, you know? But we still want to be honest with ourselves because regardless of how old I am, I still have a lot to learn. Remember the Apostle Paul, even at his death when he was right ready to go home to be with the Lord said I have not yet attained and even at that time called himself the chief of sinners so once again man we're all on this journey I hate that word but that's what we are you know and until we get there we just want to stay teachable we want to stay pliable in the hands of God you know because Paul was these Corinthians they were and it's a great thing Many of you guys might remember back in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 16 when Paul exhorted them to set aside uh, a portion, an offering, if you will, for the poor saints that were back in Jerusalem. And you recall that uh, the church, when the church first began there in Jerusalem, they, uh, they decided that it would be a good thing to become communist. And they tried the communal living. You know, not unlike uh, the 60s, those of us who remember the Jesus movement of the 60s, a lot of those guys tried that too. And uh, because they thought that the book of Acts was actually telling them to do that, well, they didn't read their history because socialism 
never works. It doesn't work. It's I like what Margaret Thatcher from England said one time, and Margaret Thatcher said, socialism's great until you run out of other people's money. You see, and what happened in Jerusalem was these guys, because of their love, they meant well. You know, they meant well. And because of their love for one another, a lot of them went out and sold their property. They sold all that they had, brought the money, laid it at the feet of the apostles, and allowed the apostles to distribute it to every man as he had need. Well, once you distribute everybody's money to everybody else, eventually the money quits coming in. And that's what happened. And the Jerusalem church, who at one time had been wealthy, all of a sudden became very poor. And the next thing you know, they were in dire need. The money had run out, but they still needed food. The money had run out, but they needed to pay the rent. The money had run out, but they still had widows to feed. The money had run out, but they still had need. Now Paul, though he was an apostle that God called to the Gentiles saw this as an opportunity. Why? Because a lot of the Jews, as, as we discussed before, looked at the Gentiles as though they really couldn't be saved unless they became a Jew first. And this is why, even with my Jewish background, I'm a little hesitant. I, I, I'm a little, what's the word I want to use? I want to be nice. Skeptical. About messianic movements within the body of Christ. And what I mean by that is you'll see a lot of people, and most of them aren't even Jews, which blows me away, that they'll, you'll see them, like they'll write God, and then they'll just put G blank D. Have you seen that? That's because Jews, Orthodox Jews, won't say the word God. Uh, why? Because they're religious. You know? I've had people say, well, what's it like to be a Jew? And I always tell them, watch Fiddler on the Roof. If you, I'm not even joking. If you want to know what it's like to be a Jew, watch Fiddler on the Roof. I love that one song, you know, it's called, Why Do We Do What We Do? Tradition. They have no idea why they do what they do. They just do it. And it's why? Because they're religious. God doesn't want you to be religious. God wants you to be faithful in all that he's called you to be. Be real. Be yourself. God's called us to be real. I love, I got a friend of mine who has a ministry down in Portsmouth called Real Life Ministries. I like that. Because ministry is real life. We all suffer. We all have problems. We all go through trials and tribulations. But we all serve the same God. We all have the same, you know, uh, recourse in, in Christ. So, Paul was seeing this as an opportunity. Those Jews thought that it wasn't possible to save the Gentiles. Paul was going, no, no. Not only is it possible, but I want to show you guys, I want to go to the Gentiles because that's where he was sent to, and he was going to take an offering from these guys and go back to the Jews in Jerusalem and say, hey, all the Gentiles that some of you guys have rejected wants to give you this beautiful, abundant offering to help in your poverty. And so Paul saw this as a great opportunity to reinstate, if you will, or to show oneness in the body of Christ by bringing this offering. And so we come to chapter 8. And so Paul says, Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit of the grace of God, or wit in the Old English, if you're using a King JV, simply means to know. We want you to know the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, 
how that in great trial of affliction, the, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty, if you're taking note, make note of that, abounded unto the riches of their liberality. This is a great passage. Even though the Macedonian churches were impoverished, they were poor churches, they, they really didn't have nothing. And we, he, he says that they were extremely liberal, though, in their giving, even though they didn't really have anything. And that's amazing to me. It's been noted in history, I think, that many times that the poor sometimes know how to give better than those who are rich, at least to the poor. Why? Because they know what it's like to be poor. So, and they can relate to them. They have a, more of a, a sympathy for them in, in many cases. Not always true, but I think in a lot of cases it is. You know, it's important to note, and a lot of people don't realize this, that God does not judge or measure the gift by the amount of the gift. He doesn't. He measures the gift by how much it costs you to give it. And it's throughout Scripture. What, is, what do I mean? Well, it's very simple. If you make a million dollars a year, and I know quite a few people who do, and you give $100,000, that's basically a tithe. And even though the $100,000 sounds like a lot of money, when you compare it to a million dollars a year, it really isn't that much. And if you're Jewish and you go back to the law, the tithe really wasn't just 10%. It was actually over 20 when you look at the actual commandment. But we won't go into that tonight. But yet the Pharisees were great about it. They only wanted, they, they wanted to hang on to it. So they paid tithe of mint and anise. And so they would simply go, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. That goes to the Lord. Rest for me. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. That was the way they gave. Not really giving, really. I mean, it seems like it. But if you take a person who only makes 20000 a year, and they give 3000 of it to the Lord, well, now they're giving out of, not abundance, but they're giving sacrificially. And that takes a special thing. You remember in the Gospels when Jesus was leaning against the treasury, and he was watching the people give money, and they were throwing their money into the treasury. Jesus had previously told his disciples, he says, listen, don't be like the Pharisees. Because when the Pharisees give, he said, they sound a trumpet. And they would walk up to the treasury and they would hold, you know, as they went into the temple, they would hold their, 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 you know, their gift way above. So everybody could see the size of the bag of, of coins they were going to throw in. And somebody would blow a trumpet. And they would toss it in. And of course, everybody would cheer. Jesus said, don't do that. Then there comes this little old lady. And she tosses in two mites, which basically in today's money would be about a penny. And Jesus said, I tell you that this woman has cast in more than them all. Because they, from their abundance, did give. And that's a good thing. There's nothing wrong with it. Jesus, not, he just, the only thing he rebuked them of was about making a note of it. But the fact that they were giving was good. But what she gave was better, is what Jesus said. Why? Because she gave out of her necessity. And he even says, all that she had. See, she genuinely, as Paul's going to say, had given herself to the Lord. You know, those of us who have been blessed by God financially, and I have been in my life. I've been through two fortunes. I really have. God has been so good to me. But, but, but fortune should flow through you, not just to you. It should flow through you so that we can expand the kingdom of God. 
You know, that's really what we're called here to do. Jesus wants as many at the table as possible. It's not God's will that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. And so he gives wealth so that we can let it flow through us so that we might bring others to the table also. But this woman had thrown in more than them all. The point is, is that God's accounting is much different than ours. God looks at the quality of the gift, not the quantity of it. And so often, you know, we think the quantity will make up for the quality. You know, you know he says, you know, God loves a cheerful giver. We're not to that passage yet. But, you know, that word in the Greek is the word hilarious. And so we're told to give with hilarity. You know, we want to give gracefully and joyfully because then God is going to bless you and you're going to see that when the Lord does do it. Look at verse 3 here in verse 8. He says, for their power, Paul says, I bear record, yea, and beyond their power they were willing of themselves, praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. Paul, when he saw the Macedonian, these poor people, who had taken up this offering, and they, they told Paul, here, I want you to take this back to Jerusalem. He was like, man, guys, you, you need this. You know, Paul really was reluctant to take the offering. Why? Because they needed it. But they insisted, and some of your Bibles might even say that they begged us to take it. And why? Because they wanted to have fellowship. You know, the word fellowship there in the Greek is the word koinonia. They wanted to have koinonia with Paul ministering to the saints in Jerusalem. They wanted to be a part of it. I understand that. I love being a part of something that God's doing. I mean, I just want to be a part. I don't have to be the mouthpiece. I'm good with scrubbing floors. I'm good with just contributing to a cause. I just like being a part of it because there's a blessing in being a part of what God's doing. And that's what these guys wanted to do. They simply wanted to be a part of it. And so Paul said, okay. So he took it. And they were blessed. And he says, wow, these guys gave very, very liberally. Look at verse 5. He says, and as this they did, not as we hoped. And if you're taking note, make note of this. He says, not as we hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God. Man, I love this verse. You know, Paul says that the Macedonians gave not as we hoped. Paul had an idea, as we all do. We always have our plans. You know, the Bible says men make their plans, but it's God that directs their steps. We have a hope. This is what I hope God will do. But Paul says when these guys gave, it was way beyond anything he hoped. It was not as I hoped. He says, but first, no, look at this. It says they gave their own selves to the Lord. Wow. It wasn't as Paul hoped because obviously they had, like I said, exceeded it way beyond. Turn with me. I want to show you something in Ephesians 3.20. Because why? Why did they do that? How did they find that ability to give beyond anything that Paul could have hoped for? And Ephesians 3.20 tells us, he says, Now unto him, that's Jesus Christ, that is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. Make note of that. You see, the Macedonians, my friends, were able to give so liberally because as Paul said back in verse 5, they first, first gave themselves to the Lord. Do you see that? They had given themselves to Christ first and to the cause of Christ first. 
Then Paul says, they gave unto us by the will of God. The Macedonian Christians were able to do exceedingly abundant above all that Paul hoped for because it was God that was working in them both to will and to do his good pleasure. Because that's what it tells us in Philippians chapter 2. Wherefore, my beloved, as you haven't always obeyed, he says, not as in my presence only, but so much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God that worketh in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. So in closing, I can't emphasize the importance of first giving ourselves to Christ, because this is what they did. Thereby the Lord is able to do for the church through you who are submitted to his will above and beyond and bore exceedingly abundantly all that we could ever hope for. I do find it interesting that to a large majority of the church today is given to philanthropy. And they have got a soup kitchen on just about every corner and they clothe and they do all these things which are good things. Do not misunderstand what I'm saying. But they have neglected some often, so often the church who has people in it that are needy. When Paul says and tells us to do good unto all men but especially those of the household of faith, consider this as I close. The Macedonians were poor. Yet Paul didn't say, let's start a soup kitchen for the Macedonians. The Macedonians and all those churches in northern Greece, which was you know, Thessalonica and Philippi and Berea, all those churches up there were poor as church mice. Yet Paul doesn't say, let's go someplace else and pull up an offering and give it to them. No, these guys were generous. They gave with liberality, even though they didn't have it. And then in turn, God blessed them. What's the Bible tell us? Give, and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. Shall men, it says, give into your bosom. And it's a fact. I would rather take a man who is destitute on the street, and let's lead him to Christ first. Let him give himself to the Lord, as the Macedonians did first. And then what will happen? is you'll see the Holy Spirit go into his life, and then you'll see a man who has a job. You'll see a man who is now able to not only put money in his pocket, but he's able to put money in the coffers that will bring other people to the Lord also. You know, there's nothing wrong with feeding the poor, my friends, but once again, we don't want to just feed a man. We want to cause a man to be able to feed himself and others also. Because as we contribute to the things of God and to the purposes of God, we are leading people to Christ. And as we win the lost, be them addicted to drugs, alcohol, whatever that thing might be, even if they're living on the streets. Every time I see my hometown of Los Angeles, which is where I was born and raised, and I see the tent cities that are there, there was no such thing when I lived there. It is heart-wrenching that these people are just laying on the streets and the needles and the drugs and, and, and then you look at the state and they have totally forsaken God. And, and they're trying to come up with every social program that you can to try to cure that. And you won't cure it. There's only one cure, my friends, and that is Jesus Christ. We all, 
And some of us, maybe even sitting in this room, certainly some of us listening by radio, have had our opportunity and our time that we spent in poverty until we came to Christ. And Jesus simply changed all that. Now, all of a sudden, I had a desire to do the things that God wanted me to do. I had a desire to work and to contribute to winning people to Christ. That's what the Macedonians did. That's what all those churches in Upper Greece did. The Thessalonians, the church in Philippi, the church in Berea. They won other people to Christ, even though they themselves were impoverished. Paul is now encouraging the Corinthians, follow in their suit. Because the Corinthian church was a rich church. And he says, listen, if the poor can do that to win more people to Christ and to help the poor saints in Jerusalem, look what all you guys can do. Father, we love you. And we thank you for the opportunity to just go through your word and to be encouraged, Lord Father, through it. We do pray for those who hear this message, Lord Father, that they would be strengthened in you and those who need to come to you and to change their mind about Jesus, Lord Father. We ask that the Holy Spirit would go beforehand and work on their heart even as I am speaking, Lord Father, that they would submit themselves to you, change their mind, and thereby change their actions. We love you so much. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.